your partner's unfiltered, uncensored. Welcome to Acme and welcome to Live in the Studio. Um, we've got a lot to get through tonight, but um, basically tonight we return to a bit of a supernatural theme with True Blood, Thirsty for More. Uh, and I guess it's sort of just in time for the beginning of the fourth series, which has just started, which I'm sure some of you may have snuck a peek at. I would never do that. <laughs> in fact, I thought we were going to run late because we're all standing around in here going, what about this bit? What about that bit? All right, I'm Lizetta. Um, I'm just kind of filling in a little bit. If you're regular audience <coughs> participants to our live in the studio, you'd be used to Anna. She's run away overseas for a while, so um, I'm just stepping in for her briefly. But uh, I'm just going to introduce our um, guest panellists this evening. And uh, I'll start with our first guest expert um, and host for this evening's session, seated in the middle, Rob Jan. Rob Jan is presenter and producer of Zero G, the science fiction, fantasy and historical radio show on 3RRRFM. Uh, Rob's been the sheriff of geekdom on Zero G since 1994 and has had a lifelong interactive passion for all things genre, uh, which has achieved expression in broadcasting, writing, filmmaking, performance, drawing, photography, sculpting and cosplay. If it's weird and wonderful, you will find Rob rolling in it. <laughs> uh, next up, Emily McGuire on the end uh, is an award-winning writer and novelist and author of the novels Smoke in the Room, The Gospel According to Luke and the international bestseller Taming the Beast um, and also non-fiction work Princesses and Porn Stars, Sex, Power and Identity. Emily's articles and essays on sex, religion, culture and literature have been published widely, including the Sydney Morning Herald, Financial Review, The Observer and The Age. She has contributed to various national radio and television programs, including the ABC TV's First Tuesday Book Club, which we love, Lateline, Radio National's Life Matters and The Book Show. And last but not least, Helene Jankowski has worked in film, television and the media industry as a makeup, prosthetics and special effects makeup artist for more than 10 years. Am I correct with that? More than 10 years? Yeah, kidding. <laughs> Uh, too many credits to list, but um, her work includes feature films, very short films, TV commercials and fashion work, as well as she now teaches in special effects and prosthetics at Swinburne. Um, so before we get underway, there will be a few spoiler alerts, so I hope you've all seen the last three series at least. Um, this uh, session tonight will be podcast, so we are recording it, so if people could put their phones on silent, that would be fantastic. Aha. Everyone bends down to do that. Um, I am not going to take up too much time because we do have a fair bit to get through tonight. It's all very exciting. And I'll hand you straight over to Rob. Howdy, folks. I hear you all true blooders. What's that? I can't hear you. That's right. I just want to do a test before we start. I revoke my invitation. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, well, I did an interview with Ryan Quantum, courtesy of Acme. So we're going to introduce you to Mr. Quantum, who's the Aussie actor, appeared in Spellbinder, Home and Away, and the thriller Red Hill, and in America in the series Summerland and the horror movie Dead Silence. You can look for him in the upcoming horror comedy movie, and I love the title of this, The Knights of Bad Astom, and in the quirky superpowers movie Griff the Invisible. 
Ryan, well, maybe you can't actually look for him in that one. I'm not sure about that. Ryan is Jason Stackhouse, Sookie's smarter, uh, <laughs> more responsible. Uh, he's Sookie's brother. And here he is. Hello. <laughs> Bill's been kidnapped. Oh. Your Majesty, you've had me abducted by werewolves. These are not ordinary werewolves. Eric Nordman sent me. I'm here to look after you. You brought this skank just to make me jealous. You're gonna make me a cop, and you're gonna make me one now. I've been taking care of your mother. I think you're the first visitor she's had. Why, Suki, now? Jackson, Mississippi. Let me go! What about no one telling me my whole damn life I had a brother? Those things you can't explain, I don't care about. This baby's Renee's. He's gonna be evil. I can't promise you perfect life. But I can promise you it'll be better than this one. Will you be my vampire bride? I won't let you go. Sookie's blood let you walk in the sunlight. The blood works for a few minutes. So you turn into a panther. Were they so bad? What are you? A witch. Russell took my family. Now I take his. No! Where am I supposed to go? Not my problem. You ain't gonna shoot shit. Do we find the bag and feet? Can you put in evidence? Mine is the true face of vampires! You want me to? I'm a fairy? Your grandfather used to know things. Personal things they never would have told anybody. She may well be their only chance to walk in the sun. Silver, you traitor. Say goodbye to my woman. Somebody gotta take care of everybody that's left. I drink human blood. Drink me. Oh. What are you gonna shoot me now? Wish I could just be a completely new person. You will regret this. Ah! You try to silence me tonight. You manipulated me into falling in love with you. I have nothing left to lose. Suki, come with us. G'day, Ryan. Hey, Rob. Pleasure to be here. Uh, the, thanks for that introduction. Uh, Ryan. You're rather auspicious. Ryan has some impressive genre credits, uh, and Australia hits above its weight when it comes to producing science fiction and fantasy, young adult and children television series, often in association with Australia overseas partners. Uh, you were one of the in one of the successful series, the uh, 1998 Australian series. I think it was with, uh, done with Poland as well, Spellbinder Two. We still get that here in Australia sometimes on the telly. Uh, was that your first experience in a fantasy genre production? It was, although I'm sure you could call some of my uh, previous efforts um, fantasy, even though they probably were not. Um, they were my my uh, my acting was still very much on its way to uh, finding itself. But that was a fantastic experience. There was the, the writer director. And producer was a guy by the name of Noel Price, and that was for me. It was the the first real time on location too. We spent, like you said, a bunch of time in Poland, and then for me in particular, I, I uh, found a real affection for China. We shot there for three months too, so that was a um, really really valuable experience. Your character in Spellbinder was a computer buff, and I, I see you're also in a new comedy comedy horror movie called uh, The Knights of Bad Aston. 
which is about role players who accidentally summon a demon. Of course, there's your performance in Griff the Invisible, uh, which is a very delicate sort of take on the superhero genre. But you're also an athlete. Do you kind of enjoy breaking the geek stereotype that way? Yeah, I, I think stereotypes in general um, are there to kind of be broken. I, th I don't think it's right to sort of pigeonhole anyone unless they really want to be. I mean, uh, me personally, there's nothing that inspires me more than doing something that people don't perceive me as doing. Or even myself, you know, I, nothing could be more uninspiring than, than play a character that I've already played. So, for instance, you know, uh, I play Jason Stackhouse for seven months of the year, but for the five months that I have off, nothing, I, I wouldn't go and choose a character that's remotely like him. That seems kind of pointless and ridiculous, and I think life is there to be experienced, to take a little risk. Right. Uh, speaking of geeks, and, and that's pretty much all I do on my own show, uh, you got to work on nights with our poster girl, the geek poster girl, Summer Glau, and you've also worked with uh, Eliza Dushku on um, True Calling. That's right, yeah. Mm, okay, the inevitable question is, what are they like to work with? Uh, I mean, so, so, I mean, you would you would think that there was there would be a. I don't know, some sort of ego or whatnot attached to them, but both of them were um, unbelievably sweet. I mean, some of most recently I worked with who's just very unassuming and very um, sort of quiet and, and uh, a real sort of analytical kind of thinker and very much uh, easy to work with. You know, I, I really, I wish, I wish uh, more actresses were kind of like her, to be honest. Oh, really? That's nice. Yeah. That's a tribute from a straightforward Australian actor. <laughs> Uh, Summer Glow is um, a Joss Whedon discovery, of course. Uh, are you familiar with the Buffy the Vampire Slayer television series or anything like that? I'm uh, familiar with. Um, I, I you know, can't say I've seen every single episode, but um, definitely familiar with. I mean, that was kind of, uh, I guess, the beginnings of the whole sort of vampire genre for the, the modern day era anyway. Yes. anyway. Uh, well, on the subject of breaking um, stereotypes... Some commentators assume that uh, true blood is a, a simple metaphor for the treatment of oppressed sexual and racial groups. Vampires and werewolves stand in for gays or African Americans. But in some cases, there's actually good reason to be prejudiced against vampires and werewolves in the True Blood series because they're really dangerous. Uh, yeah, look, I think Alan's always described any allusion to the metaphors as it's whatever you whatever you get out of it. It's almost like looking at a bit of uh, art on the wall. Everyone's going to see something different in the painting. Um, and I, I very much feel like, and I hope that True Blood has this sort of the intelligence for people to kind of get whatever they want out of it, is, the, is that the river runs a lot deeper than um, what you first see. And some people just see a vampire for vampire. They don't necessarily even see the metaphor in there, and that's fine. It's Whatever, whatever you want to get out of it. <laughs> in spite of the fact that your true blood character, uh, Jason Stackhouse, uh, he's not, he's, he's, he admits he's not the sharpest sling blade in the southern tool shed, but um, <laughs> he's actually got quite a complex story arc in the books and in the television series. Yeah, the, um, the book sort of... Uh, He's not as fleshed out as he is in the series, and, and the series is very much, I guess, a, a TV-savvy 
version of what the books are. And um, look, for me personally, he's such a, a real sort of thrill to play because in, in terms of the, I guess, the evolutionary totem pole, he has started so low. Um, and he's only got room to grow from where we first see him in season one. So for me, it's of how well they write for my character they're, they're, it's everything that ever happens in his life is a constant challenge whether it's just sort of a simple something simple that happens in day to day but invariably in true blood nothing is really simple and nothing is what it seems so those, those other decisions that he has to make for someone like Jason the naivety that he possesses I think it's um, I don't know it's, it, it always leads to sort of hilarious ends there are 11 southern vampire novels you've obviously read some of them how much do you try and carry that over into the performance? Um, you, 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 I mean, I have read a few of them, and it's you read them, you understand them, you take them in, but ultimately it sort of comes down to uh, how myself and Alan and, and the director of, the, of that particular episode want to sort of portray him. And uh, it... Obviously, Charlene's books sort of created a really good uh, foundation for it, and then it's just a matter of sort of um, finding little moments, little things that we can tweak along the way. And uh, I think that's the beauty of of the um, the business in and of itself is that everyone has to sort of come together for that little moment of what you see on screen. The the first season of the television show and the book they're all about. Um the murder, and I'm sorry if no one, if people haven't seen the first season, and they're probably not watching this anyway. Uh, it's a spoiler. The, it's, they're all about the murder of women connected with your character, and that has a real big effect upon Jason in the second season. And he gets born again as a as a fellowship of the Sun Churcher, uh, who are sort of anti the supernaturals. To easygoing Aussies, that kind of religious zeal is a bit hard to sort of get. Where do you go as an actor when you're playing Jason? House of God parish worker. I, I think with anything in Jason's life, he comes from such a point of innocence. The moment he, he knows anything, I think it becomes a little bit harder for the audience to forgive him if he goes if he does something that's even slightly evil. Or, um, but I, I think with the naivety that he carries, he can sort of get away with joining these so-called religious cults because he, at that point, he becomes our view into that world. So you, you kind of want him to sort of see as much as he can see and explore and just see either how mad it is or, and, and hope that he doesn't get swept up in it. Hmm. There's, a, there's a couple of moments when uh, you look up to the camera and you can see the, almost this like an innocent but fanatical light in, in your eyes. And, and since I, I know that you're going to play, or maybe have played by now, uh, Charles Man Manson in Brad Anderson's film, um, you know, that's, that, that's an interesting sort of contrast. Yeah, um, the, the Manson thing is on the back burner for the, for the time being. There, uh, some uh, financing sort of fell through at the last second. But yeah, the, uh, a few people have alluded to that maniacal look. I personally don't see it in myself, but um, I guess that's the... Uh, I don't know. There's, I've had, a, uh, I guess, an adventurous life, so there's a lot from which to pull from. Let me just put it that way. One of Jason's main characteristics is such an enthusiastic uh, hedonist. Uh, there's a lot of humour in the second season where he's trying to pull that back into line with his new faith, like a, a hot chick will walk past and he'll go, ah, oh, or maybe not, I'm, you know... <laughs> 
Yeah, he's. Uh, I mean, that's a, a constant battle with someone that's lived uh, such a a life of uh, virility, I guess, as Jason has. Um, and it's. I, th- I think of all the people to be stuck in that world of, you know, faith and uh, celibacy. It's kind of hilarious to have Jason in there. I mean, I've just finished shooting. We're in the process of finishing shooting season four, where there's allusions to Jason possibly turning into a werepanther. But I actually think it's kind of funny that. Um, of all the people that want a sort of superpower or some sort of supernatural ability, um, Jason probably wants it the most, yet he can't have it. I think that's sort of, again, the, the paradox or the juxtaposition with which to play um, Jason is always the funniest part for me. I can so see him with a swastika on his forehead playing Charles Manson. It's just too easy for him, I think. Okay, uh, do we have any questions? Oh, actually, I'll ask a question of, of y'all. Uh, how many people have watched all three seasons? Put your hands up, please. Okay, now keep your hands up if you've also read some of the books. Huh, okay. Now this makes it difficult because how do we do spoilers? If you've read the books, you'll know certain things. How many people have actually seen the first episode of the fourth season? Bloody hell. <laughs> Okay, I've got uh, somebody from HBO here who'd like to have a chat with you. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, okay, well, if there are any questions about True Blood that anyone would like to ask, just quickly, because we're just filling little questions in between some of the brackets here. No? Yes? Mm, they must know it all already. That's frightening. Well, okay, well, we'll move into the next bracket, which is uh, Emily has a talk that she's going to give us, and uh, I'll just, without further ado, go for it. Thanks. Um, I think we can't talk about True Blood without talking about sex, uh, not only because there's so much of it in the show, and there's, I mean, there's really a lot. Like, in preparation for tonight, I went back and watched the, all those three seasons again, just skipping the bits that weren't sex, and... I think it probably wasn't much quicker than if I'd just watched the whole thing through. Um, But the other reason we can't talk about True Blood without talking about sex is that it's vampire fiction. And vampire fiction has always been, at least partly, about sex. Throughout the history of the genre, vampirism has been used as a metaphor for all kinds of stuff. Um, All the kinds of things that you weren't supposed to write or talk about explicitly. And most of that had to do with sex. Sex with outsiders or foreigners, um, sex with multiple partners sex with people of the same sex. If you wanted to explore a taboo, you could stick a vampire in there, call your transgressive social fiction horror fiction, and you'd be right. Um, It makes sense then for fans of any kind of vampire fiction to ask what the vampires in True Blood are standing in for. What real-world struggle is represented by Bill and Sookie's struggle to make their human vampire romance work? What real-world taboo is being explored when we see Eric or Pam feasting on humans? What, in short, does all this hot vampire action mean? And a great deal has been written, and um, it was referred to in the interview then with Ryan, uh, about the apparent parallel that the show draws between vampires and gay people. Um, I came across an article in the Daily Beast by Michelle Goldberg where she points to, among other things, the God Hates Fang sign in the opening credits, the references to vampire human marriage. And she argues, and this is a quote, that 
True Blood draws a clear parallel between vampires and gays. And she goes on to argue that given that the out-of-the-closet world depicted in True Blood is one of widespread corruption, addiction, disease and bloodshed, the show is seriously homophobic. Um, again, her words, a quote, the show's universe is like the right's worst nightmare about post-gay liberation America come to life. Now, Alan Ball has himself many times addressed this idea that the show draws a parallel. He's called it lazy and wrong and has said that the small similarities, the language of equal rights on one side and of bigots on the other, are just nice little details in what is hopefully a big popcorn thrill ride. And I mean, of course, he's going to defend his show from charges of homophobia, but I happen to think that he's right, that it is kind of really lazy and flat-out wrong to make that comparison. Um, indeed, I'd argue that drawing a parallel between the vampires of True Blood and any single demographic or societal issue is lazy and wrong. What I love about True Blood, apart from all the nudity and explicit sex, <laughs> is that it plays with the classic vampire fiction tropes. It goes a certain distance towards meeting the audience's expectations of vampirism as a metaphor, but then it subverts or smashes those expectations. So yes, there are God hates fang signs and there are references to equal rights amendments and mixed marriages and bigotry, but the big difference here is that the show actually features human and vampire characters who are gay, who are openly, unashamedly sexual and who are attracted to people their community tells them they shouldn't be. It explores these issues and relationships literally. So there's no need for metaphorical or purely metaphorical exploration. And it's not really what we, we being the sophisticated, seen and analysed at all modern audience, is used to. A show with loads and loads of sex and we're unable to fall back on all the old standbys for discussing it. We can't simply say that human vampire sex is standing in for interracial or same-sex sex because those things are happening as well. They're standing in for themselves. We certainly can't talk about penetration of fangs as a stand-in for sexual penetration because, again, there's plenty of actual genital sexual penetration um, with and without fangs as accompaniment. So could it be then that sex in true blood isn't saying anything? that it's simply part of the popcorn thrill ride, that it's all gorgeous but gratuitous. Well, I don't think so, or not all of it anyway. Um, many of the sex scenes are extremely graphic for TV, but they're also actually extremely romantic and even quite sentimental. And sex is frequently used in the scripts to develop character. And if we look at how it does that, I reckon it's pretty clear that there is a kind of message coming out. Um, and I reckon it's a pro really progressive one. The key case study is, of course, our heroine, Suki Stackhouse, who begins the series as a virgin, but before too long is having off-the-hook wild and dirty sex with the undead. <laughs> now, as a character type, the virginal girl who keeps herself nice waiting around for her one true love is numbingly familiar. But here we have the really interesting twist that Suki's lack of sexual experience at the start of the series isn't the result of a religious or other moral belief system that demands abstinence. It's the result of her ability to read thoughts. And if we can just see the first clip there and have a little bit of a look at how this is affecting Suki's love life. Can I ask you a personal question? Bill, you were just licking blood out of my head. I don't think it gets much more personal than that. How do you manage a social life 
A man your own age, your own thought must be. I don't date. Yep. Oh, I've, I've been on a few dates. Man, I can't wait to see her naked and rolling if she's a natural blonde. Nothing worse than a blonde with a big black bush. Every guy was a pig. The kind of girl I come here and spend the rest of my life loving. Never have those thoughts of Matt Damon, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Jordan. Saying a hat on. Hey, where are you going? What's wrong? <laughs> but it always ends up the same. There must be some people who know about your talent. The people closest to me. But we never talk about it. And I do my best to stay out of their heads. Over the years, I've learned how. I figure it's kind of unethical listening to my family and my friends, my boss. But they know. Other people suspect or they think I'm psychic. Most people just think I'm crazy. So we can see how Reading Thoughts has put Suki off before she even managed to get naked with prospective partners and can't help imagining how much worse it would get if things did go further. I mean, if you think through the implications of being able to hear your partner's unfiltered, uncensored, lizard brain thoughts while you're going at it, it's actually probably pretty unpleasant and creepy. Um, that she can't read Bill's thoughts frees her up to be sexual finally because she doesn't have to put up with hearing all that off-putting and possibly unflattering chatter. Now, the whole murder mystery plot of season one plays with a common horror trope, and that's of women being punished by gruesome death for being sexual. It's a trope that reinforces conservative ideas about the importance of girls and women keeping themselves nice. But again, here what is usually subtext has been made text. Character after character explicitly links the women's deaths to their status as fangbangers, thus giving other characters the opportunity to argue against the idea that they somehow had it coming. And best of all, in terms of smashing old tropes, the person who conquers the baddie, the one who kills the killer of sexual women, is Suki, herself a by now unapologetic, passionate fangbanger. When we move on to season two, the most interesting storyline, I think, in terms of sexuality is that of baby vamp Jessica. Her journey from whiny, panicked adolescent to sexually voracious, confident vamp is, on an emotional level, far more true to life than most of the teen girl coming-of-age narratives we see in pop culture, where teenage girls are portrayed as either mindless, clueless sex magnets or innocent victims of monstrous male sexuality. And we might just see a lovely clip of Jessica now. I love it. <coughs> yeah, so you can race cars, um, or you can play tennis, or dance, uh, or you can shoot people. <laughs> well, I've never done any of that. Well, here, I'll show you. So, uh, man. So these are the controllers. You just hold that like that.
that from me. That's natural. How can you say that? I mean, I have fangs. And they just come out and I can't control them. And... This is so embarrassing. I'd die if I wasn't already dead. <laughs> Don't be embarrassed about what you are. Because what you are. adorable. <laughs> um, I love that scene. It's just a really gorgeous portrait of teenage sexual anxiety. I think this kind of embarrassing, uncontrollable physical manifestation of lust is a situation, though, that we more often associate with teenage boys. Um, and what I love about this scene is the reminder that even the physically stronger of a couple, the one who actually has the means to force their will, can feel vulnerable and embarrassed by the uncontrollable demonstration of their lust. It's not about being able to get what you want out of a situation. It's about being wanted and being accepted. And when Hoyt tells Jessica that she's great and that they're natural and they're part of her, it's really the very best of young love and lust right there, that, that first reciprocation of desire and the vanquishing of sexual shame. And then the thrilling twist, of course, here is that there's no need to wring hands or clutch pearls over the loss of innocence this sweet young virgin will experience if she gives in to her lust. Instead, it's actually the big, buffy bloke that we need to worry about. Is he getting in too deep? Will he end up used and cast aside, or worse? And this is a lovely twist, I reckon, because in real life, of course, there can be as much damage done to boys as girls, to men as women, when it comes to love, especially first love, which is, you know, bloody dangerous. So watching Jessica and Hoyt, we're actually forced to see the vulnerability of the man, and we're forced to acknowledge the sexual voraciousness of the girl. Jessica's sexual curiosity and desire is further reinforced when we see her in Dallas ordering a male straight B-negative from the hotel menu. This is no innocent girl being sexualised or corrupted by outside forces. And I think I'm right when I say that most women watching the show will agree that it's not the vampire in her but the teenage girl who made that call to room service. I can't leave off talking about Jessica without discussing her amazing regenerating hymen. Um, <laughs> If we can just see um, the next clip, thank you. I can't believe I waited so long. We are going to do it every single night, whether you want to or not. You still want to, don't you? Well, sure, yeah. Just that Sucky and Bill might come in any minute.
the what? It grew back. It what? My, my fucking grew back. <laughs> oh, I know what I mean. Everything heals when you're a goddamn vampire. Okay, come on. Come on. It's gonna be beautiful. Every time it'll be like our first time. It'll hurt like hell. I'm a fucking deformity in nature. I'm gonna be a virgin forever. So what's interesting, I think, is that Hoyt's reaction is kind of this unreconstructed, male-centred, terribly conservative idea that female virginity is something precious, a gift, if you like, to the man doing the de-virginating. And it's an idea that's still current, as evidenced by the apparent popularity of hymen reconstructive surgery, um, Christian evangelical abstinence movements, and the large genre of pornography that's dedicated to the apparently unique pleasure of popping the cherry. So for a few seconds here in this scene, Jessica is, in conservative porn terms, the perfect girl. She's sexually voracious yet constantly renewable. She's the magic pudding of girlfriends. You can receive that special gift over and over and over. But then, bam, Hoyt and any remaining unaware members of the audience get schooled on the fact that there's nothing beautiful about unintended, unwanted pain and bleeding during sex. The ultimate fantasy is actually a bloody nightmare to the girl it's being foisted upon. Now, fortunately, in the next episode, Hoyt thoroughly redeems himself when he talks to Jessica about alternatives to intercourse, which is lovely in and of itself, but more significantly for our discussion here tonight, Hoyt's way of dealing with the situation contributes to True Blood's overall depiction of male sexuality as complex and multifaceted. None of the regularly appearing men and male vampires of True Blood fit the conservative image of men as creatures with one-track minds who lose control at the sight of a scantily clad woman and will do everything up to and sometimes including rape to get their way. The character who comes closest to that stereotype, Jason Stackhouse, is actually an outlier in the series. In the first part of season one, when he's at his sluttiest, his behaviour is frequently commented on by the other characters, letting the audience know that even if he's not disapproved of exactly... He's also not the norm. And later, as he becomes more sensitive and complex, his inability to live up to the stud stereotype actually causes him considerable distress. I mean, poor Jason, when he's traumatised by shooting eggs and is told by Andy, conscience off, dick on, everything's going to be all right. And it is a funny line, um, but the way the narrative unfolds doesn't support its wisdom. Um, Jason can't turn his conscience off. Um, Everything is not all right. Meanwhile, even the early days insensitive uber-macho Jason is not threatened or bothered by his friend Lafayette's queer sexuality. The only people who are bothered by it are the ill-fated rednecks Lafayette beats up in Merlots. And throughout this, the audience is assumed to be on Lafayette's side rather than the side of the homophobes. And later in Eric's dungeon, Lafayette watches one of those rednecks die and then uses the dead man's artificial hip to cut himself free. Throughout, those who act against Lafayette are punished. But the behaviour for which the showwriters seem to want the audience to disapprove in terms of the behaviour that Lafayette is punished for is actually nothing to do with sex or his sexuality. It's to do with his dealing drugs, especially V. Um, Finally, I need to talk about Bill and Eric 
and what their depiction tells us about the meaning of sex and sexuality in True Blood. Um, on the one hand, Bill is a gentleman and a rather prissy one at that. Eric is... Well, Eric is the sole reason a good many women I know watch the show. Um, I was going to show a clip of him, but I knew I'd never regain your attention, so I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> the performance of masculinity by the vampires in the show is really fascinating because, of course, the usual rules about gender roles and sexual expression don't apply to them because there aren't any consequences to breaking them. And vampires that have been around as long as Eric not only aren't following any particular society's gender rules, but they seem to have uncovered what is implicitly presented as a universal truth, and that is that bodies are bodies, and pleasure is pleasure. And it might be that this type of body is more likely to bring you pleasure than that, but there really are no hard lines being drawn. Bill, however, is by choice mired in the human world, and so he's more invested in adhering to southern human masculinity codes. Um, that is, he wants to be a gentleman. It's part of his self-image. It's a self-enforced code. The kinds of people who'd actually be threatened by a man who appears sexually ambiguous, they'll just see him as a vampire anyway. But nevertheless, he clings to old ideas of how a man behaves because he wants to. If he's uptight about sex and sexuality, it's because he's trying to fit in with societal codes which the audience knows are stupid. Indeed, in a created universe in which just about anything goes, sexual repression, as represented by the Fellowship of the Sun and later by Hoyt's wannabe girlfriend, Summer, is just about the only sexual behaviour frowned upon. The other is lack of sexual choice, as in Marianne's Dionysian orgies and Tara's abduction and rape by Franklin. So I think there is a message to the overall depiction of sex in True Blood, and it's that societal rules and expectations are bullshit, and if it's consensual and it feels good, rock on. Thanks. Um, that was great. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> I learned a lot. <laughs> Probably stuff that I'll not want to actually use at any stage, given the context, but <laughs> awesome. I have a question, Emily. Um, mm -hmm. The third season sort of everything goes wrong because Bill is overprotective of Sookie and it doesn't work. Yeah, and that's part of, I guess, what I'm, I'm getting at in that he's really invested in this idea of himself as an old southern gentleman and to, to the point of absolute frustration in that he doesn't listen to her because she's always saying she doesn't want to be protected and she doesn't want to be spoken for and he just keeps on doing it because it's so very, very important to him for whatever reason that he maintains that. And, and it does, it sends everything to shit because... Um, he's constantly kind of overruling um, her own decisions about her life or mm. preempting them even. Uh, it's interesting that Jessica's um, such a newbie vampire and uh, you were saying, well, it's not going to be very pleasant for her regrowing her, her flower <laughs> every, every time. Um, but I would imagine later on as she becomes an experienced vampire, blood and pain would actually be quite you know, sexy for her. Well, it's possible. I mean, I, I guess that's why I would specifically say that it's unwanted yeah. blood and pain during sex that's unpleasant. I mean, if she gets to a place where it is wanted, then I'm sure she'll have a great time. But um, at, at this point in her development, not just as a vampire, but as a, as a teenager and it's her first time sex, it's, it's you know, it's terrible. Poor Jessica. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, this is the sort of conversation that blokes sort of say, can you tell me when you've stopped talking about <laughs> 
you're asking. No, it's just, it's a, this, is a, this is the value of true blood. It allows you to talk about things that you never would even have thought of it's before. True. It's, the, it's the last taboo talking about regenerating hymens and <laughs> being allowed to talk about it through vampire characters. <laughs> and you said it wasn't metaphorical for um, I was just wondering, is, is, as our uh, resident um, prosthetic and special effects expert, <laughs> isn't there something that can be done? <laughs> I haven't been asked that one before, but... Um... No. <laughs> There are, there are um, and I, I, I know this for professional reasons, there are porn sites that pride themselves on showing the, the special moment. Oh. Um, and, and I've been told by industry insiders that there is, you know, okay, maybe work being done I, so I'll that special moments can occur again and again and, and again. Get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> See what I can come up with. That won't be on our list of um, emails and URLs. And the links. <laughs> the links. <laughs> uh, is there anyone who dares to ask a question on this topic? There is. There we go. Uh, what's a trope, Emma? Oh, okay. Um, gosh, I don't have a little snappy definition ready for that. Um, well, it, it's it's an idea that gets repeated so many times that it becomes familiar to audiences of a particular genre. I think there's what's what's the there's a site, the television tropes that that lists all kinds of tropes for every kind of situation that you could come across in in film or TV. Like the uh, the the assistant will always fall when being pursued by the monster and twist his or her ankle. That's a television trope. Yes, or the, the girl who's alone in the house getting chased will run up the stairs. Um, and, yeah, in this case, there's, there's, there's a pretty common one of, of um, the, the girl who has sex will be the first killed in the horror movie and the sexual women will be killed first. But in the Joss Whedon universe, the girl who looks like she's going to be killed will actually turn out to be the man-eating uh, lost creature or whatever. Yep. <laughs> new, new tropes for a new age. All right. Uh, oh, um, any more questions? There's a, there's a reason why I'm wearing this Merlot's cap. It's so that I can block the uh, the sunlight, no, the light out from above, not the sunlight. Okay. And well, uh, the next person speaking is me, strangely enough. And I do promise you, it will be strange. <laughs> okay. Uh, first picture there, obviously, is a. Uh, slide stolen from <laughs> the actual series uh, and they've got such a great sense of humour on True Blood okay, now I spend a lot of my time talking about True Blood with starting the conversation with well it's not Buffy but it's so not Twilight for which we are all duly grateful although I think it's pretty clear to me that Bon Tomps has actually got a hellmouth somewhere located underneath it but I enjoy True Blood for three main reasons. It's fantasy genre and notionally horror, and as uh, Zero G's pilot, I tend to enjoy those sorts of things. It's got some clever riffs on vampire procedural, and you know what I mean by vampire procedural. It's like a CSI procedure, you know, there's, there's police, medical, legal, Boston legal procedural, where they're talking about the nitty-gritty of how it all works. And this links in with my third reason for liking True Blood. It's bloody funny. And their vampire procedural is practically always amusing, which is pretty sick when you think about it. But that's OK. We can, we're all adults. We can enjoy macabre humour. 
It's the kind of show where you can distract a demon, who's a woman who's been possessed by a demon, by helping her play, letting her play Wii. It's the kind of show where you've got a Viking vampire who naturally must be called Eric the Vampire, and his last name is Northman. Now, okay, that's partly Charlene Harris's fault. She is such a, a geek, you can tell. Even the title, True Blood, is funny because you all know that the synthetic blood is anything but a true blood. It's a substitute. And a lot of the vampires get snooty about that. It's a whole shaken, not stirred thing. And it deliberately undermines itself, as Emily was saying before. Vampires are just pointy-toothed peeps that shouldn't be discriminated against. Yeah, right. Like all oppressed minorities? Yeah, right. They're killers, for God's sake. And normally, in my travels through the genre, I'm always supporting the vampire slayers because usually they're right. And in True Blood, they do seem to be right, but the vampires are so funny, I sort of give them a a day pass on this. Uh, Most of the writers of True Blood have got comedy credits. There's a long list of sitcoms. Uh, Well, you know, Alan Ball, the series creator, worked on Six Feet Under and a show called Oh, Grow Up. And before that, Sybil, Brian Buchner, uh, Friends, Spin City, Rayleigh Tucker worked on, get this, Supernatural. Nancy Oliver, Lars and the Real Girl, that was one of their scripts, and Six Feet Under as well. So they've all got comedy credits, they've all got chops in the area, and I think that tends to make uh, the, uh, the show very, very specific in its comedy. It's a, a comedy drama, and that's why I like it. I like a good giggle as witnessed by my DVD collection. Comedy counts, and that's what I should call this segment, Cajun comedy counts, the lighter vein of true blood. There have been coffin loads of vampire novels, thank you for the person who coughed then, movies and television shows. Now, there are a lot of damn scary vampire books out there, but a rather large chunk of the screen screamers are less hair-raising and more hilarious. Uh, This is a sample of them. I think there are three types of these sorts of uh, funny vampire movies and television shows. Ones that are supposed to be comedies, first and foremost. Uh, The the Hammer House That Drip Blood. Uh, Love at First Bite with um, George Hamilton. The Fearless Vampire Killers, Roman Polanski's uh, famous and actually rather hard to get movie. Uh, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which does actually have Dracula in it, Bella Lugosi. And, uh, and so on. And in fact, I think actually the vampire legends, uh, we always hear about the superstition, the fear, all of that in, in historical terms too, in historical mythology and folklore. We never hear about the funny side of it. Uh, one of my pet theories is that vampirism was first fostered by people seeing post-mortem decay on corpses, either accidentally or because they dug them up deliberately for some reason. I don't want to speculate about the reason, but... Anyway, the thing about that is I, they, we record that. We've got uh, an archaeological skeleton uh, somewhere from Venice, I think, of a woman whose skull is opened up and there's a brick in her mouth to stop her from walking as a vampire, apparently. We didn't, you never hear the reactions, the funny side of that, of the people playing with the skulls after they've exhumed the corpses. Or the people who said, ah, there's a vampire, look, their, their fingernails are still growing, their hair is still growing after death and the grave digger who would just phlegmatically punch him with a shovel and say, nope, still dead. 
We never hear about that, but it's alive or unalive and well in the comedy representation of the vampire on the screen on both big and small. There are some of them which have a foot in both coffins, especially those that can smoothly switch from drama to comedy at the flip of a fang. The Night Stalker, Shadow of the Vampire, one of the great vampire movies uh, as a comedy and a drama. Uh, Supernatural, the show, Buffy, Angel. And then there are the ones which are the yeah, nah, maybes. They're so bad, they're good. Dracula 3000 springs to mind. I wish it didn't. And Dracula's Guest. Also, Billy the Kid versus Dracula. You'll notice there are a few movies on that little chart there. There's a couple of uh, ones, some Chinese ones, Mr. Vampire, a Mexican one, Santo versus the Blue Demon and the Vampire, uh, and a Thai one, Deja Vu. They're all actually funny in themselves, so they're okay. They get a free pass. I've got Van Helsing in there because it has in common with the Buffy movie Pee Wee Herman playing a vampire. That's got to be bad enough to be good in my book. If you don't think Richard Roxburgh was channeling Paul Rubens in Van Helsing, then how do you explain his take on Dracula? It's a terrible movie. <laughs> but it has such potential. Oh, and by the way, thanks to the Count for helping me count. And if you know anything about vampire law, there is a reason for why he counts. If you throw a handful of sugar or salt in front of a vampire, they have to actually stop and count all the grains. So that's how you can... Uh, escape from them. And, of course, there is the funniest vampire I've ever seen. <laughs> Let's go to work, says Pup Muppet Angel. <laughs> now, there's one particular vampire film, almost south of the borderline funny, Catherine Bigelow's 1987 Texas vampire film, Near Dark, that's a first-rate precursor to True Blood. Lance Henriksen, Jeanette Goldstein and Bill Paxton looking like they've had a repeat match against Jim Cameron's Aliens there. This is a fine departure from the idea of vampires as dapper European noblemen, red-eyed Transylvanian counts. And this is where I love True Blood. It's about good old lost boys. Most of the vampires... Well, most of the supernaturals and the characters, they're all just guys from Louisiana or gals. And, you know, they're as, they're as common as dirt. There's no nobility in them whatsoever. And, in fact, I'm sure that uh, the Raynard Parish Road crew probably has a night shift as well for the vampires who can't quite make it. Then there's Sookie. Isn't that a great name for Australians? They can't work out in America why we laugh every time we hear that name. Anna Paquin. I love that the whole True Blood crew are such devastatingly ordinary rednecks. I mean, Sookie has X-Men-like powers, but she'll stick to waitressing if it's all the same to y'all. Not that she actually spends much time working. That may be her, uh, her pad for writing down um, orders, but it may also be her time card with nothing filled out on it too. <laughs> it's the thought that counts. She's got a job. Arlene is often the only waitress waiting but at least she has a job as well. And this is actually different to some other vampire shows where some people at least have some visible means of support. And because the vamps have come out of the coffin, I think this is actually quite central to True Blood. They're having a non-existential crisis. What do they do now? They're not really supposed to be creatures of the night that bite anymore. They're supposed to be politically correct. But, you know, how are they going to live or unlive? In the book, at least... 
Bill has a kind of a job. He's able to create a vampire database that people consult and presumably subscribe to, which is very funny. I think that's a great idea. But the rest of the vampires, well, you know, I'd like to see some vampire truckers who could actually drive all night, then go to sleep in the cab in the day and get their human partner. You know, they'd make a fortune doing that. And uh, Suki, she will get involved with someone's personal problems at the drop of a napkin, any napkin, anywhere, anytime. But I did love her line about uh, being a fa- when she found out that she was a fairy. That's so lame. It is. <laughs> For her, it's lame. But we love Suki because she's a terrier. She muscles up. She will fight a 2,000-year-old vampire. And uh, I think that's quite impressive for her character to be able to do that. Now, the, um, the next picture that I have here <laughs> shows you the vampire nobility at their finest. Oh, that's Suki's cousin there too, isn't it? Um, but uh, Evelyn, even Rachel Wood, uh, Marilyn Manson's girl apparently, or ex-girl, um, Okay, so she's, they're, all, they're all quite rich, obviously. They've been spending their time, in their immortality, accumulating riches. What does she do? She plays Yahtzee. That's the best she can come up with. The other vampires, <coughs> they run sleazy nightclubs or they're plotting world domination. Or then there's Godric, who's turned into some kind of Buddhist vampire. <laughs> He's something special. And by the way, I actually thought that was a very Buffy moment when he bought the farm in the show. That was actually great. I actually had wished they'd spent the entire season building up to that so we got to know him more, so it would have had more impact. But that was, a, that was a pr- an impressive bit of, of work there. Uh, the vampires' inflexible hierarchy amongst themselves, you know, the whole maker thing that, that goes on there, uh, that's actually more of a family unit than any of the humans have in this show. It's, it's kind of scary, but it's funny, and this is what I like about True Blood. Uh, you know, they're all over the place when it comes to kinfolk, except for the vampires. They know where they stand. Hopefully not behind their maker, because they never know what's going to happen to them. The American Vampire League. <laughs> this is a great concept. Uh, at least they have an agenda. It's a funny agenda, but you can see that they must be aware of the blood on the wall. I, I was thinking about this quite early on when I was watching True Blood. They're trying to get legal protection. It's very X-Men like this. And I think they're doing it because they're trying to get in before the humans realise that they can farm the vampires for the blood that could be used as medicine to cure practically everything. You think about it. The vampires are actually very much in danger of being farmed in this show, which is kind of the opposite of what happens in a lot of other movies about vampires, where they want to turn humans into battery blood banks. Of course, they have their opposition, the wonderful sunny Fellowship of the Sun, uh, who are the most dead-set brilliant satire on religious zealots that I've seen in a long time. Everybody in this is corrupt. They're the exact opposite. They're probably using V themselves, as many of the, uh, the characters have. Uh, it's just ripe, wonderful satire. On the, on the other hand, it's actually quite real when you see uh, religious cults in the world. Uh, there was one thing that, that did crack me up, just in a strange way. That bombing that they have at the end of... Um, Season two, is it? Yeah, well, um, why aren't these Fellowship of the Sun people all in Guantanamo Bay now for being terrorists? I don't know. Has one of the great lines of all time in uh, True Blood where um, Jason's playing Catch the Flag, snaps a flag that he captures over his knee and the other guy says, you snap the American flag like you were some Muslim buffy with a dick. (laughs) 
Great dialogue. Bill recycling. How funny is that? Why are vampires so green? Well, it's because they want us to not pollute our precious bodily fluids. So, yeah, I can see why that would be probably a, uh, a good thing for vampires to be green. Oh, Bill Compton, he's a piece of work, isn't he? The, uh, the actor um, was in Highlander and Ultraviolet. Stephen Moyer played a vampire journalist in um, the British series Ultraviolet. Uh, and that was a great... Actually, that's one of the other great vampire series. And meanwhile, the writers keep us entertained with gems like uh, his um, accent. I, I think that's great. Half the people in True Blood are not American. They're all making up their accents with varying degrees of success. But I am terribly amused by Bill's old southern manner of speaking. Suki, I am a vampire. I am supposed to be tormented. <laughs> and if you watch the... Um, the, the little uh, post-mortems on the discs, you will see that Bill is not above using his glamour, his vampire powers, to get a, che- a ring at cost off a salesman. <laughs> One of the funniest moments in the show, uh, Emily showed the clip where um, Russell uh, rips a spine out of the anchor on the TV news. Terrible moment, bad for vas- vampire PR. Totally blowing their agenda. And then says... <laughs> and now the weather. Tiffany? <laughs> Love that. Sheriff Bud with his pants down. Square dancing Sheriff Bud. I love the way he just up and quits. I've had enough. 43 years, gaps in my brain and polyps in my ass. I don't need this shit. William Sanderson, underused, I think, underwear there, but underused in the series. He's a great actor. He's tremendous in Deadwood. But it's uh, one of the great comic moments in the show. Every time he showed up, he did something that was funny. Jason <laughs> pretending to be an imaginary god. He's, he's the funniest character in the show. Comic relief. Uh, he thinks maybe Jesus was the first vampire that rose from the dead. He gets religion after shooting eggs. And he goes wandering through the forest saying, uh, if there's anyone out there, God, aliens, that lion from Narnia. <laughs> If a tree falls in the wood, it's still a tree, ain't it? (laughs) And didn't you love his bizarre speculation about Sam's shape-shifting possibilities? Oh, that killed me. (laughs) Evil is is, uh, making the premedicated choice to be a dick. (laughs) Oh, my God, he's a great guy. 22 questions on the cop exam and he doesn't answer one right. (laughs) Keeping himself busy in the sheriff's office by eating the fingerprinting ink. He'll be a cop one day in the Dukes of Hazard County, I'm sure. You know, I never really thought I was smart enough to get depressed, yet here I am. (laughs) Funny vampire procedural. Jessica getting stuck in her travel coffin. (laughs) Silver, used here as an implement of torture. I just find this incredibly funny, the way Sookie drags poor Russell backwards and forwards. (sighs) Jessica, crying. Blood. You may imagine how difficult this is with those white uniforms they have at Merlots. Uh, and they're such blood bags when they blow up too. It's a very comic dissolution for the vampires. And they're just pow, all over the place. Very tragic. She has body issues too, as in what do I do with a dead body? <laughs> that just killed me. Oh, actually, maybe not quite as much as that, but still. And I like the idea, and this is vampire procedural, it actually works quite well. What do you do with the bodies? You put them in fresh graves. That's quite clever, actually, and it has been used by um, 
serial killers before in real life. True Blood, available in microwave. There, we've done our product placement for the, uh, the moment. Microwavable brand True Blood. You have to heat it up to body heat. Of course, the effects of this are varied and usually comic. Uh, actually, ooh, that's not the one I want. Uh, it doesn't matter. That's, that's another comic moment. That's Sam. The humour is not restricted to vampires. I love that Sam's default shapeshift is a collie. A wear collie. Come on, guys. There are wear deers, wear pigs, wear flies, and no doubt a wear Wilfred somewhere. I also enjoyed Sam's gay dream about Bill. <laughs> and another thing, uh, they explore logical thoughts. You know when you're watching a television show and you go, why don't they do that? Well, you know, it was so stupid that um, Sam's relatives were dogfighting for a living. How low is that? You know, how smart is that? I thought Jason was the bottom rung, but that was pretty dumb. I thought, why don't they use their powers to steal things? Surely that would be easier. And then, the next episode, we saw Sam using his powers to steal things. And it didn't work out too well. But I like it when you're watching a show, you think of something, and they go, hey, that's what we'll do in the next episode. It's actually quite scary. You think maybe they're watching you or something. Do the twist. Even the sex in True Blood is funny. Over the top, round the other side, Bill and Lorena. Not quite the most bizarro couple I have ever seen. Spike and Drusilla still get that gong. Uh, Tara's relationships in the show, there's another one. The kind of ships that go on three-hour cruises when the weather starts getting rough. That's, uh, she's due to have some very strange things happen to her in season four, if I've read the books correctly. And you can usually follow some of the way through what's going to happen in the next season by the book that corresponds to it, but not always. There are some changes coming up that uh, are going to be quite different. Oh, there's some other things I like about the vampires here that that make me crack up every time I hear them. Eric's ringtone on his telephone. (laughs) Ain't we got fun? Uh, And there's little lines, throwaway lines, like Pam, when she walks into a room and there's a big crisis going, she says, blah, 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 vampire emergency, blah, you know. (laughs) It's very Buffy-like. Now, this next bit is a a geek thing, but I always get a low-level smirk out of seeing actors from other genre shows in um, True Blood. Anna Paquin in X-Men. Stephen Moyer in Ultraviolet. What a haircut that is. (laughs) That's even better. That's him as Prince Valiant. I think they lost the bowl that they did that one with. Alexander Skarsgård in Generation Kill. A great... Movie, uh, series that one and recently been on television here too Jim Parrick Hoyt in Battle LA why are they always soldiers well here's another one Michelle Forbes our dear Greek goddess as um, or wannabe goddess as Admiral Kane in Battlestar Galactica holding an oven damn sacrificial knife and also as uh, Ensign Rowe in Star Trek either that or they're working on the Federation road crew John Billingsley, the coroner for um, Bon Tom. Flocks from Enterprise. William Sanderson, pushing his own cart as E.B. Farnham in Deadwood. Ed Quinn, one of the vampire guys from Dallas, one of the, uh, the nobles here is uh, Nathan Stark, named after Tony Stark, Iron Man, in Eureka. Dean Norris from Breaking Bad, Walt's brother-in-law, as the Dallas detective who met them at the airport. Uh, Carrie Preston, Arlene, who's actually married to um, Michael Emerson from Lost and has been in Lost as well. Somehow that makes sense. And (laughs) 
Ryan in Home and Away. <laughs> but still, life goes on. <laughs> and Bill's the top one in the middle row there. Uh, and I think they've actually missed a few comic opportunities with flashbacks because um, uh, there's a lot that they could have done with that. A lot they used to do in the Highlander television series and also in the Angel one with that sort of thing. But they did manage one really good one with Nazi werewolves. That was so cool and such a cliche in the genre. Nazi werewolves. And it reminds me of that line in Buffy, in Spike, or, sorry, uh, Angel, I think it was. I went back to World War II. Angel saw Spike wearing a Nazi um, overcoat. And Angel said, Spike, you're a werewolf, you're a Nazi? And, and Spike went, oh, what? Uh, no, I just ate one. <laughs> Great stuff. And I think that um, they follow in the footsteps of Buffy and all of the other comedy vampire shows with True Blood. Okay. Uh, do we have any questions about True Blood as a, as a comedy vehicle, as a dramatic comedy? Anyone have a particular moment? Sorry? I did have a question about the farm that you mentioned. I can't remember it, so we're just trying to figure out which farm Godric buy. Oh. <laughs> oh, I've used jargon, have I? I'm sorry. Um, question about which farm did Godric buy. When I say he bought the farm, it means he died. <laughs> he bought the farm, it means you've got, you've got six feet of dirt. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's fine. No, it's actually... In the presentation handbook, it says avoid using jargon. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, it's a redneck jargon, you know. <laughs> That's what it was. Okay. Ah, oh, it's so hard to see with the light here. The light. Okay. Uh, now, we have a. Uh, what's our next bit? We have Helena, who's having her bit next. So, over to you. Okay, hi everyone. Uh, what I thought I would talk about is the choice of vampire design, uh, looking at their teeth. And uh, they've also chosen a very beautiful vampire, so it makes them more human and maybe more um, deadly because they are so beautiful and beguiled in. And the other thing I wanted to talk about is the, the role of uh, CGI um, with the special effects and the prosthetics. And uh, just pose a few questions. Uh, if you connect through a character, does that make um, reality heightened? So c connecting to Silky or connecting to Bill and then kind of if they're in trouble, you know, when uh, Lorena is uh, dissecting... Bill, does uh, the blood effects, does that, is it more real to uh, the audience? Um, so I, I want to look at um, whether reality of uh, what a wound looks like is um, entertaining enough for audiences. Uh, there's, uh, I really like the, um, the kind of imploding, spewing vampires when they get staked. I think that's quite interesting. So I'm just going to go through uh, some pictures. Uh, so we've got... I've just picked some uh, uh, genres of the vampire. There's so many different things that I could have picked, but Nosferatu was probably one of the first ones. And just looking at his fingers, they actually look um, very much like... Um, what's it? You can help me with the character... 
No, yeah, Marianne, the where Silky gets the scars. It's um, very much like that. So I'm not very technology based. Um, I find this one is a very interesting uh, choice of design. It's quite primal, um, and it's getting uh, down to that level of their existence. They exist for the blood. Uh, they're they're killing machines. Um, was that 30 days of night? Yes, that was 30 days of night. So, and uh, I think Todd um, Masters, who's responsible for some of the makeup, he worked on that. So a lot of the, the makeup artists that are responsible for the prosthetics and the special effects, they've worked on things like Buffy, Six Feet Under, Caribbean, uh, the, the Pirates, the Caribbean. Uh, so um, you've seen all their work before. Um, I found... This, as a taking the vampire to another level, was very interesting, which is from Blade 2. Uh, if anyone's seen that, I'm sure there's quite a few people that have. Oops, sorry. Okay, and then the first kind of the precursor of the vampire, um, you know, going before Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing's and Bella Lugosi. This is kind of like the pre-Buffy. Is this the Lost Boys? This is the Lost Boys. So this is where we first get that um, forehead coming in and the, the mm. eyes. and it, it, It's a little bit comical. Um, and, and the teeth. You, you notice that the teeth are either... Uh, you've got the two and then centrally out or then to the fifth. I kind of find that fascinating, but anyway. Mm. Uh, and then we have the master from uh, the Buffy series. And his teeth are kind of like uh, shark-like. And the teeth, actually, in the series, they were designed by uh, Dan um, Rebert, and it's based on uh, a, the way snakes' fangs work. Um, I got a pair online, and, yeah, they're kind of a bit weird. They didn't quite fit. Um. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's seen them, and, and I was trying them. I thought, oh, should I bring them in? And try them. I haven't quite mastered them. But um, the idea of all the actors is they had to wear their, their fangs and uh, talk with their fangs and their fangs uh, would actually retract down. Um, in the design, I think it's uh, vampfangs.com, um, <laughs> uh, they actually, it's, it's on this little swivel where you, you bite into your back teeth and then you, with your tongue, you bring the teeth down sort of thing. So... It's kind of it's a, an interesting point to start and then take it further. So anyway, that, then we get into the the very beautiful vampires. So we've got the more kind of primal ones uh, where they're almost prehistoric in their their nature. They're just killing machines, and we we start to getting more humanism because they do look more human. So um, that was from Underworld. Sorry, I'm really stuck on the. Then we have lovely Bill, and apparently he was the, the best uh, with speaking with the fangs in. Uh, the Queen. So they're all very beautiful, very sexy um, characters. And so you're being drawn in by their, their sex appeal, whether it's the, the women or the guys. And uh, they're very beguiling. So I think that makes them more dangerous. I don't know if anyone has any opinion on choosing uh, this particular uh, representation of vampire. <laughs> um, so 
Does anyone have any questions so far or comments about vampires or makeup that, that you know they'd like to talk about or ask? Okay. Yeah, go for it. Uh, I think blood recipes are still a little bit secret. Um, um, generally, they'll try and, like, uh, I think on the DVD, they, they'd offer her low-carb, low-sugar, and uh, <laughs> 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 when um, uh, she was um, being um, saved by Bill. Um, there's, there's lots of recipes out there, and um, definitely if it's more palatable, uh, it, it's good. Uh, not for me <laughs> <laughs> You're asking on behalf of a friend, are you? <laughs> I, I, read, I was reading the blog, and yeah. there was an overheard quote where they posted sometimes, and yeah. they said that they'd heard someone from special effects mm. mention that there was, uh, it was either pomegranate or possibly pomegranate, which. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stains too. Stains sounds Stains like a shock. just like um, most bloods, <laughs> fake bloods anyway. Um, it's it's kind of hard. Like I, I don't have a, a perfect blood recipe myself. It's something where I'm kind of on a journey. I've got something where I'm happy with it, but it doesn't quite. Um, it's not. It doesn't quite have the same kind of uh, opacity and uh, viscosity of the way blood is and that. Um, I mean, you could, you know, pick any kind of uh, solutions and uh, as long as you get that kind of viscosity and the right colour. Uh, you notice that a lot of when there's blood, it's at night uh, and it's, it's always deeper reds uh, that we see. We don't tend to see the, um, um, the ER where, where it's arterial blood is bright red and it, it kind of doesn't look real. Like, um, it did in the 70s. <laughs> it was all, all arterial. It was all arterial? Yeah. <laughs> it's probably, it's also kind of what registers um, in, in the filming of it. So, and uh, often uh, a director may choose a particular blood colour uh, because of um, the impact it has sort of thing. Um, anyway, so... Um, I think um, the marriage of uh, CGI works really well in the series when you don't notice it. So, um, you know, when the um, Inquisitor is getting his head knocked off, that's kind of very obviously uh, you've got a bit of CGI help. But um, one thing that kind of stood out to me was Lorena when uh, Bill throws the, the lamp at her head. It's just so seamless that you actually just accept that's what's happened and it, it's... It goes in telling the story. So I'll just go through a few more. Um, I'm just going to flick through some of these. These are uh, wounds. Um, and, you know, it's a mix of uh, real wounds and not real wounds. Uh, and there's our, our lovely Miss Jeanette. And uh, it's very impressive, the, the work that they've done uh, with the bodies. Uh, this Janelle character, I think she actually looks more attractive as a corpse than what she was actually as the actress because she was a, a drug addict. She was, and she's, she looks very attractive here. 
Um, so they've used CGI. Uh, so they've got the dummy. They've got it all rigged up. And then they use the CGI to give you uh, the draining effects. And it works very effectively. So I hope I'm not grossing anyone out. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, this is uh, an autopsy where you've got the uh, the character where she's in between shoots and that. And uh, how real does that look to some people, or does it, you know, because she's sitting there? Do you? Because she's sitting there smiling. Yeah. 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 Do you think that uh, we, in our minds, uh, fill in? a bit of detail, like when you see like something that's quite confronting, uh, my first reaction, even though I, I sit through air, um, um, medical shows um, and gory films, uh, uh, but my, yeah, my first reaction is like, oh, or someone tells me something and my imagination just goes, Ooh, oh my God, that bug thing. Ugh. Do you think that that's used in... Uh, Series such as this? Yeah, I was going to say, I think it works similar to when you've got the soundtrack to a horror yep. movie, and if you watch a horror movie, yep. it sounds like so it's, it's, it's more funny. Yep. It's not so horrific. Yep. Yeah, uh, definitely, the humour definitely uh, makes the, the violence more uh, palatable, and um, uh, the, um, the vampires imploding, I find that quite comical. Um, it, I, I'm sure it's not meant to be that, but it's there's some very Im impressive work. Um, with images, I was kind of limited by what was on, on the net and what was released, but um, this is our long shadow where he is imploding and, uh, and then Bill burning. I would have liked to have had um, the, uh, the king have him burning, but that's the the stages of makeup. So there are three set stages of makeup, and then they, they add in the CGI. And you know, you see a lot of that where you've got the silver and wounds healing up in real time. Um, like something I didn't notice in the, the first series, because uh, I wasn't actually looking at it with makeup eyes when I, I saw True Blood. Um, I didn't notice, uh, like, have I already said this? I'm going to sing now. No, you yeah. haven't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, I didn't notice that they, they were using a... It didn't even dawn on me. I just thought, well, because of the angle, it could have just been um, tubing uh, worth her sucking off. But they actually used a, a prosthetic arm with tubing in it so that she could suck the blood off. And I totally didn't even notice it. It was just a part of the story. Uh, that's from uh, one of the Silence of the Lambs films, and that's a very impressive. And I just thought I'd chuck in just... It was Gary Oldman, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, I just thought I'd chuck in uh, a few character makeups as well, uh, where uh, this is from Pan's Labyrinth, and how, like, the, that particular character, the first character, um, just the way they, they rig up his feet and, um, you know, the, the use of blue screen as well uh, with the, the CGI, it just really makes things come alive. And I think where CGI and prosthetics are, are really married really well is when it's just a vehicle that you see to tell the story. So you're not actually noticing the effect. 
Um, there are, there, when looking through the series, there were things that really kind of hit me in the head where you're going, oh yeah, that's CGI, CGI, boom, boom. But there were things that were really quite subtle where you just totally forgot and you were um, picked up by the story. And I think that's a sign of a really good series where you get caught up in the story and not the makeup or the special effects. So, um, yeah, that's kind of... Um, that's a really um, about it. Does anyone have, like, any favourite? That's, um, that's um, Guillermo <laughs> del Toro's... Yes. <laughs> ...idea of what a children's movie should be. <laughs> that, that's actually a really good film for... Uh, not, not the kind of the, the monsters, but uh, the actual, uh, just the, the special effects where uh, he's, he's sewing up his mouth mm. where he's been cut and uh, he drinks whiskey and you can see it coming out. Mm. And um, I think that's the first time I've seen something like that. Um, and then in the, the Masters of Horror series, there's a, a, a vampire one where um, he has his throat ripped out and he's he's thirsty he doesn't realize he's dead and he's going to drink and you actually see the water pour out so cgi is fantastic for removing volume that you can't cheat with a, a special effects or prosthetics yeah it's hard to you can't do that with the actors you can do it with the extras <laughs> yes because you know you can use amputees and uh, that's something that's become um, more unknown uh, it's um got to meet their wolves. Yeah. <laughs> Did they get to meet the were-pig, though? That's <laughs> I think th I like the, um, the use of the CGI in the show. It's not heavy-handed too often, but one of the things I like about... Because, you know, werewolves are flavour of the month. We've been through... Maybe flavour is not the right word. We've been through zombies, were uh, vampires, and werewolves are quite popular at the moment as well. And I always think it's difficult to take the human from the werewolf back into the person. You know, I mean, we've all seen American Werewolf in London, mm. Rick Baker's wonderful special yeah. effects for that. But to pull them back into the human being, unless you're just reversing the camera, is actually kind of tricky to do. You can mm. burst things out, but come back. I guess that's where the CGI comes in with, with this. Mm. Do you remember in Buffy they used to do... Um, uh, after a while, they got us trained like Pavlov's dog. They didn't actually have to show a staking. You just hear it in the background. You go, you'd hear, woof, and that would be it. You didn't need to actually do it. How cool is that? The, the non-special effect. Um, I think I saw a hand over here. Yeah, yeah go for it. Question about the bleeding from the eyes. Yep. How they do that. Yeah. Uh, you can actually get um, blood that you can put in the eyes, and then when someone cries, it. It, it actually does um, is come as. Blood or is it uh, I think she said it was a mix of uh, the the blood uh, using a, a blood product for in the eyes uh, and uh, a mix of CGI. Wardrobe would hope that they would use CGI. <laughs> <laughs> I 
unless they've got a very good like blood re recipe that doesn't stain. Mm -hmm. If um, if you're interested in, in blood recipes, if you use a, a pigment that is oil based, it's less likely to stain. It's still a stain because red pigments are very small pigment, so it gets into your skin, uh, but it's less likely to leave a durable stain. So sorbitol and uh, an oil-based pigment, and you could get it from um, cake-making places or food uh, suppliers that are, are specialist food suppliers, and it's just a 2% solution. You can put something else in to act as a preservative. I can see another hand. Sorry, it's really hard because oh, we're, we're like... Um, um, when she cries black, yep. something they put in your eye. Yeah. How do they do that? I mean, wouldn't you see when she's looking at the camera that her eyes are red and she starts crying? How does it work? Um, I think they might have put it, like, they might have put the drops in before they start the scene. And so the drops are, the eye is coated with these drops. And then when they cry, then their tears mix with the, um, the blood that's put in your eye. Like, it's clear. So it's not actually red that's being put in your eye. It's a reaction that it has, and then you get the blood coming down. Hey, but she, sorry. Yeah, go for it. Would yeah. she physically fly, or would it actually irritate her eyes if the tears come out? <laughs> um, I don't know, because I haven't actually tried the blood stuff in my eyes. Um, uh, I've done noses, mouths, and other kind of places, but... Um, I haven't actually been in a situation where I need to have blood from my eyes. So. It sounds like a party trick, doesn't it? I can make blood come out of my eyes if I drink some blood and uh -huh. my nostrils and my ears. You probably actually can do that kind of thing. You can do that with milk. No, that's... <laughs> my God, it's... Anyone who's actually interested in the um, in special effects makeup and so on, it's very easy now. You can just go on YouTube and get DIY instructions. Just check it out and they'll, they'll give you plenty of... Um, examples of that, but uh, I'm sure um, uh, Helena would also agree with me that one of the best books is, and still available in print online too, uh, Dick Smith's Monster Makeup Book. That's not the Dick Smith that flies helicopters, <laughs> that's the exorcist Dick Smith, the guy who ma who's, you know, the makeup, one of the makeup gurus, and uh, there's a lot of interesting blood recipes in that. Corn syrup and... Um, uh, food colouring is one of my favourites. Yeah, it stains, but it, it can gum up really nicely and look like serum, and you know, and it's edible too. You just got to hope that they're not uh, diabetic. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> extras. But you would check that out beforehand. Um. What about fangs? Where do you get fangs? Uh, oh, okay, you can get them online. Um, or you can have them made. So um, I've made them before, and uh, I, the first kind of... Uh, I did this really low-budget uh, film, and um, I didn't know how to make them. I just kind of uh, looked it up and went ahead and, and did it. And uh, it's, a, it's a simple process, but it wouldn't be as refined. It's more refined now, but then it wasn't as refined as a, a dentist. So it, they, they fitted, but they weren't all shiny and sparkly. They were just... Uh, if you've used... Had acrylic nails, uh, you know that you've got to buff it and shine it and sort of yeah, do that sort of stuff. So They do a wonderful fang... Um, uh, what would you call it? When the fangs unsheath, 
on the show. Mm. It's an I've slowed obviously slowed this down on the DVDs of watching it, and it's just this. What the other teeth seemed almost seemed to move out of the way, and the and the the fang comes goes, goes click into place. It's mm. very nice. Mm. Well, we have next. Oh, and thank you, Helena. That was a, a very interesting presentation. <laughs> and and we can fat and fang you. <laughs> Now, uh, we have the second part of our Ryan interview, and uh, yeah, here we go. He's still trapped in the eternal sunshine of um, LA, I think, where he was. Uh, Jason gets a, a fair few comic lines in the series, and sometimes I'm just watching and I think, you know, he reminds me a little bit of the character in My Name is Earl. Oh. I actually, I've, I've never thought of that. Um, people, I've, I've heard there's uh, George Bush references, um, and you know, people would come up to me on the street and sort of say, "Jason reminds me so much of you know a friend that I know, just a good old sort of southern boy." Um, so I mean, I personally don't don't summon anyone. It's just more about the finding that character, I guess. Are there any uh, comedians who you do look to for inspiration at any stage? Uh, look, I, 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 I've, I really enjoy Sir Chris Lilly's work. He's done sort of a phenomenal job in um, you know, what he originally sort of started in the square and how well that sort of crossed the boundaries. I think um, comedy, when it can travel across continents and uh, countries, that's when you sort of see that universal appeal of just of making someone smile and uh, the ability to be able to do that which you know some comedians just have that sort of natural ability I personally you know I, I don't think I have that but I mean if, if the line is there and I can deliver it I, I'm not really good at that slapstick kind of comedy but more of the uh, playing the seriousness and if it just happens to be funny then that's that's a byproduct of the scene it's not me trying to get the jokes out of it with the series roughly approximating the books, the readers already know that you get to uh, get to be a wear panther. Uh, are you anticipating, if it happens that you end up being one in the series, uh, are you anticipating the challenge of getting to be one of the true blood beasties? Um, yeah, that was always the the intention of uh, of season four, which is sort of turn into a wear panther. Um, so I. You know, I, I hadn't shaved for a very long time to, to really help them out. And, um, you know, there's so many kind of supernatural elements to the show now that it's, uh, that it, why not, why not have a wear panther? Why not see what uh, can happen? That's it. I'm thinking Jason will be, all of his natural characteristics will just be enhanced. <laughs> right, it's almost like uh, when Jason was on, was on V, uh, you know, it sort of times everything by about a thousand, so it becomes, you know, far more sort of sexual, but also sort of there's a violent element to Jason too, or, and that um, that can sort of overtake him. That's possibly going to involve special effects makeup and prosthetics. Have you done much work with those? I've done a little bit of work. Um, True Blood sort of prides itself on doing a, a bunch of stuff in camera too, so I've been working with a lot of. Uh, uh, just Panthers, you know, live Panthers. So that's been very, very interesting. In fact, I've done a couple of things now, even Red Hill. 
I've worked with uh, a panther in that, so I must be the, the go-to actor when it comes to panthers. <laughs> Um, along with True Blood and, of course, the, uh, the horror film Dead Silence, I think you get a fair few offers of horror movie scripts to star in. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think the, what the show has done for me, it's opened up such a, um, a great um, smorgasbord of films that are sort of coming my way now. So I've been very fortunate in the fact that people recognise, I guess, hopefully an inkling of talent in the character that I play. I mean, most people don't even recognise that I am Australian when they do see me on the streets. They're very surprised to hear this very voice that I'm speaking to you with. They think that I'm actually acting now. Uh, um, but, yeah, I, I'm, I'm surprised at the, the range of scripts that I'm getting sent. It's not necessarily anything to do with um, the South or sort of horror things. And if it is, it's, it's, it's all very, very different stuff. So I feel very... Very blessed, very fortunate to have uh, the opportunities that I've got. We were talking about Red Hill before. It was the Australian thriller movie a step beyond the, the horror genre. Was it what? Sorry. Uh, the was Red Hill a step for you beyond the horror genre? Um, yeah, I mean, it's Red Hill to me was more of a throwback, and I guess a modern day take on the the old school western. And, you know, it was sort of more a cross between uh, High Plains Drifter and No Country for Old Men. And um, it definitely had that sort of thriller slash horror, uh, horror element to it, but it, it, I don't think in any way would it be called a horror film. Um, There's horrific scenes. Um, but, um, no, that was a great experience shooting in... That was my first time shooting in Australia in uh, eight years. So it was, was nice to get back. It was nice to be able to use this voice again. Okay. I'm just thinking... Uh... Small town Australia and small town USA. Uh, is there much difference between them? I think the one of the um, the great things about shooting in a small town like Omeo or basing uh, a story in a small town is that it gets very insular. So that the people within that town um, very rarely do they sort of choose to travel outside. They're, they're very comfortable with being in that own little cocoon. So no information really gets in and no information really gets out. So when you can create a great story around that, it becomes a character. The town in of itself becomes a character so as the stakes hopefully get higher and higher in each act that you, you feel the walls sort of naturally closing in and, and, and tightening in on your main characters and I think it, it's, a, it's a really appealing thing when it's done well you look at some of the great thrillers of the past and they all sort of are set in that sort of small town kind of thing where, and you can really sense that uh, constant level of, of terror hmm. yeah it's very compressed into the small space mm -hmm. Are there any acting areas you'd like to have a shot at that you haven't done yet? Areas? Yeah. Um, I mean, not necessarily areas or genres, but I mean, just working with sort of good A-list um, directors, uh, finding great stories. Um, you know, I'm heading back to Australia again in uh, July, August to shoot a, a, another Aussie film called The 20-something Survival Guide, so very much looking forward to that, sort of a, um, a comedy. And, um, yeah, you know, just not taking a step sideways or backwards, just constantly sort of looking forward and looking for the next challenge. And, you know, I've always been of the belief that the harder you work, the luckier you get. So uh, I'm following that. 
Well, one thing we do know that uh, the United States shares with Australia a very sporty culture. Is there any sports that you've taken up over there or ones that you've become interested in? Yeah, Rob, it becomes so hard to keep up with um, any of the Aussie football codes. And I was a, you know, um, a huge rugby league fan and even, you know, um, AFL fan. But it's so hard because the, you have to find it on some remote little cable station out here and I don't have cable or television for that matter. So uh, I've become somewhat of a fan of American football just for the sake that there's nothing really much else out here to kind of get into. And so I have, you know, a, a team that I've sort of pledged allegiance to and um, I can... I can follow the sport. In fact, my dad actually used to wake up at, at uh, two in the morning, and I remember there was Don Lane. I don't know if you remember, but Don Lane he used to host a show at two in the morning for the, like the the game of the week, the NFL game of the week. And some of my earlier childhood memories were waking up in the morning, and you know, I was maybe five or six, and dad would be out in the living room watching uh, an NFL game. So it was. Uh, it's it's funny that here I am now in the in the the land that he was watching. It's quite amazing, Gridiron. I've, I've actually played it in school myself, and wearing the body armour was actually my first experience of wearing anything like medieval armour. Oh, right. Yeah, and it's funny too. The, it, all the Australian football codes have such a great respect out here. When I tell people that I played, you know, league or union, whatever, whatever it may be, they always sort of say, God, you Aussies, you're such sort of masochists and you, uh, you must really enjoy pain because we, we really pad up over here and we've got the helmets and everything else. So there's, uh, they, they definitely treat us with, uh, with respect. So that's nice to know. What was the team that you've become a fan of? Out here? Yeah. Uh, the, Phil the Philadelphia Eagles. There's the, the very first film that I shot out here was a film called America Brown and I played that character, America Brown, and he was a uh, high school... Uh, uh, quarterback and um, the film was actually financed by the owners of the Philadelphia Eagles so they flew in their second string quarterback to teach me how to throw properly and um, yeah that, that pigskin sort of flew across the screen it was nice The HBO series uh, are generally 12 episodes long instead of a network series which runs to about 24 is that a little bit less gruelling to film? Uh, it's not necessarily less grueling. Um, the beauty of HBO, I think, is that they give the course of an entire season or sometimes the course of an entire show to, uh, to stretch out characters and to, to poke and prod and um, to really get to know the characters. Whereas, you know, most episodic dramas, so everything happens within that 30-minute or 50-minute zone. You know, they, the character has that arc and then it's kind of either forgot or um, not really picked up again until the, sort of the next episode. But there's such a, a, I think, a really good flow to sort of the HBO shows. Um, and it's the great thing about that is that it, it sucks you in as an audience member. You you, become, you feel like you're part of the lives and you, there's an addictive quality to it, I think. I find that a lot of the HBO shows uh, eventually come on DVD here in Australia. So we end up watching them in blocks, and that 12 episodes is a very neat little block to watch them in. Oh, that's good to know. It's very good to know. That's actually how I like to watch, you know, television shows, because like I said, I don't have television, so the, the best way for me to do it is just to, uh, to buy the DVD if there's something that's worthwhile and just go through it that way. Um, yeah, well, thank you very much, Ryan, for sharing your afternoon with us.
Oh, you're welcome, Rob. Thank you. And uh, we'll uh, look forward to you coming back to Australia to do some other movies and shows, as well as season four of True Blood. Really looking forward to that. Thank you very much, mate. Yeah, and all the best with the radio show too. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> he can't actually hear you, but never mind. <laughs> I thought it was a great line there. He says he's ra raising the stakes. That's pretty significant in a true blood sense, isn't it? Hmm. He's a great guy, actually. He's, um, it's so funny, though, chatting to him because you think he's not talking in that accent for a start. He's talking in our accent. And he's using words like juxtaposition, which Jason couldn't even read, let alone say. This is strange. OK, now we have a, a, Q, a little bit of a Q&A session now, uh, which... Um, I'd like to sort of kick off by asking uh, anyone, is True Blood the first vampire series that anyone here has ever watched? Wow. Okay. Uh, and you, sir, do you find... What, what, what drew you to it? Uh, I think it was... Yes, we've got a portable microphone here. Well, yeah, it was my girlfriend, first of all. <laughs> she said, uh, but it's kind of really different to say Buffy, I think, just because I think, it, I guess, it's a bit more graphic and it just touches on things that other shows don't usually, like network, mm. normal network series don't really talk about. So I don't know, it was kind of had uh, an element of other shows that are like kind of mixed in with the vampire thing. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, is, is this a common. Thank you. Is this a, a common experience amongst everybody that uh, it's something that you can watch as a couple? Because I know in my case, my partner and I, we both watch a show together. Any any other couples watching uh, True Blood? Okay. One down here. Mother and daughter. That's scary. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's cool from a female perspective, but it's scary from blokes' perspectives. <laughs> Okay, I haven't uh, read the books, but has anyone got an expectation of what they think the fairies are going to be like as a character? Like, um, I know that they're all, they're presented and they're all fluffy and stuff, but I don't think they're going to be fluffy. I think they're going to be quite evil and, um, yeah. Yeah, they were a little bit in the first Yeah, I was about to say, most people in the audience haven't seen the first episode. Oh, okay. Anyone that hasn't, yeah. just la 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 la? Yeah, they didn't do it. Were you happy with the depiction of, uh, of the evil fairies? Yes, because. <laughs> I didn't like where it was going. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty lame. Like, hey, you're a fairy, and Alien would have been cool. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, and I hadn't read, I've only read the first one, and, I, and 
I've learned it to the second one, and but I skipped to the fourth book. <laughs> so <laughs> just so I could just yeah uh, while I'm watching the, the fourth season, also have a different perspective with what's going on in the fourth book. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? It's, I mean, we have such a fragmented experience of these of television shows now. There are people who've seen the show because they've acquired it by other means first. There are people who are watching it on whatever television station it ends up on in Australia. Then there'll be people who will see it on DVD. Uh, it's not kind of like um, the times when you could watch a television show and you know that everybody would be talking about it around the water cooler the next day. It's a big fragmented experience, but you do have the virtual water cooler of the internet, and it's, that's why it's important for us to get shows that we really like here at roughly the same time, because otherwise you're going to hear spoilers on the internet. It's very complicated. Can I just let everyone know that HBO have actually released um, the second episode online. Ah, yeah. HBO. Yeah. If it's accessible in Australia on our network or something, you know. Well, yeah, there we <laughs> The fourth season of of Supernatural, I was going to say, the fourth se- and I and I'm a fan of practically everything the genre and Supernatural and True Blood are very similar in some respects, except um, True Blood has yet to reach its maturity where they can do a musical episode or. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I, I think I'm the only person in the room that hated the Buffy musical. Oh, it's- it was, it was brilliant television. I love musicals, and that's why I found it, you know, really kind of bizarre. But I, I just, I couldn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it just cracked me up. Surely not. Jump the shark when they. Uh, there's another bit of jar- television jargon: jumping the shark, referring to the f- episode of Happy Days where Fonzie yeah. jumped a shark. On water skiing. Season four. And if you've read book book four of the uh, the uh, the novels of the series, you'll know that there are certain things to do with witches, which we've already obviously alluded to in the third season. Uh, and the poster for season four says something wicked this way comes. So you know they're onto that. We know there are witches. We already know they've just talked about the fairies. So that's there and uh, the were panthers. And there's some other things. I've seen some uh, interesting casting lists for it. Um, uh, Fiona Shaw is Marnie, the, uh, the the palm reader. And uh, Dexter star Courtney Ford there. She's going to play Andy's sister. Like, Andy needs a family, of course. I love. Don't you love Andy and Jason's little weird sidekick <laughs> hero kind of thing? When they're muscling up to go and fight uh, Marianne, it's like, Jason's inspiring them with lines from action movies. <laughs> oh, God, so, so wrong, but yet so right. Uh, they also got um, Gary Cole from uh, uh, Harvey Birdman, attorney at law, and uh, Babylon 5 fans, the captain of the ship in Crusade. He was in West Wing. He's played General Custer. He's been around a lot. He's missed Mike Brady in the Brady Bunch movies. Uh, he's um, coming up as... Um, uh, Suki's uh, grandfather, I think. But you know, you never s- know who these people are until you see them in the show. And and we know every, he, who here thinks that we're never going to see Godric again. Nobody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, wh- and the thing, the other thing is, uh, what about the uh, the king of uh, Mississippi? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to bring him yeah. back. Yeah. He's got the best I believe he will be back. Yeah. Yeah. I believe Excellent. he will be back. 
This is a thing in genre shows, isn't it? I mean, I mean, they're dead to start with the vampires, but it doesn't matter how buried in concrete, <laughs> chained at the bottom of the ocean, in, in, a, in a sarlacc pit on tattoo. It doesn't matter what's happened to you. you can, you've <laughs> always got the chance to come back again. And Bill has some interesting career moves in this uh, season, which I won't go into, but it does depart from what they've done in the novel. So that's interesting. Uh, is there anyone here who read the novels first before seeing the season, the series? There's a few people. Did you say it does part or it doesn't? Sorry? It, uh, it, it's, it's different for the novel. Yeah, it is. Yeah. There are, it, it's, there's been some on- online chatter that um, the show's creator might be getting a bit uppity now, but he already has departed from the um, adaptations of the novels before now, but the ones coming up, some of the fans online of the books are going, no, no, this won't do... And I respect that, and, but Charlene Harris seems to be happy enough. Hell, she's had a cameo in the show. Um, she was sitting in, sitting there as uh, in in Merlot's bar, talking. Was she the rude, rude lady? No, she was one next to the rude lady. I think oh. she's sitting there opposite Sam, talking to him. So you know, she seems reasonably happy. And who wouldn't be? I mean, she's an author, and you know, how would you feel if someone? Picked up one of your books and said, "Let's make this into a massive hit hit television series." Um, yeah, I mean, I guess she was already had a massive hit book series in the first place, so yeah. she's used to super wealth in a standard that most authors would never dream of. <laughs> but I do think I think she's quite wisely let it let it go. Like you've got to understand that it's such a different genre than, than books, and yeah. particularly, I mean, I haven't read the books, but my understanding is that they're all um, first person from Suki's point of view. And certainly going into a TV series where you're going to be often moving out of her perspective and seeing things that a character can't see. You know, if, if Charlene Harris was to try and really keep tight control over that, it, it just wouldn't work. So I think you've got to just take the royalty checks and let it go. There's, there's some things that we saw. You can see, you can t- tell that typical shot. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yep, Sorry. And I love the different reasons, so if, if the show was exactly the same as the book, I'd be pretty bored. Yeah. So, yeah, I know that a lot of people, especially online, is all talking about season four and that certain things that absolutely must happen in yeah. season four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all people will turn off their heads. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of agree with that as well, because it did stick much closer to the books. Yeah, yeah. So I know what's going to happen here. Why is it taking me... What do I have to watch 12 hours when I could read the book? I still want to be shocked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess where if, if I've read the book and I feel a little bit of disappointed is if there's a description of a character and you imagine it and then they cast someone hmm. that looks totally different to how it's described in the book, for instance. I think I just want to double-check with Andy Belfour's sister... She's described as like similar to him. Yeah. That's, I guess that's I was disappointed in Pam. 
the actress playing Pam in the books. How dare you? No, I do. That's wonderful. I do, but I just I feel in the in the books Pam is like this ninja. You know, she's terrifying and she can kill everybody and you know beat the best fighters. And but in the in the series, I don't get that feeling. There's not such a um, a warrior woman thing to her. Maybe she's um, she doesn't feel that she has to show it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think so. I like her attitude, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask, has anyone found anything in the series uncomfortable watching? Yeah. I was so stupid. Um, it was the scene where they were meeting, sorry. One thing I found was, was really stupid was when they were meeting at a department store and it was Eric and oh. um, <laughs> Bill, and they were wearing tracksuit pants. It was just... <laughs> <laughs> what is that? What's going on there? <laughs> Oh, what do you see these highlights? Don't vampires actually have natural coloured hair or... Yeah. Just <laughs> uh, they try and bleach it, but it immediately comes back again. I guess it heals. Or something, so. You get really bored of having the same hair too. Can you even cut, like, vampires' hair? It doesn't quite grow back to the original. That was one of wow. the things... They have to cut it every day. <laughs> that was one of the things in Buffy. You could always tell a vampire because their fashions were stuck in the year that they turned or something. like... Oh, that was done in the 70s. Yes, he did, yeah. That's yeah. right, there's a big scene about that, isn't there? That's and right. he's short when he goes back in, in time and then he's, he's long when he goes back to when he's <coughs> yeah. the, the Vikings. That's strange. So, Maybe yeah. there's a knob in their back that they just turn. And it's just like... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we have a question there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You, you know, it looks so real, and you just had this awful gut feeling when you imagined yeah. that it was real, and it mm. was really effective from that perspective. Or Lorena, when she's torturing, has tortured Bill, and she's cutting down mm. his mm. chest. Mm. That just simple cutting stuff. Yeah. Those, those tools were very kind of Spanish Inquisition as well. Uh, and also going back to. Uh, uh, Mel Gibson. Uh, Passion. Braveheart. Braveheart. Yeah. So oh, that, Braveheart, like they, yeah. you know, uh, they use those to. Um, I forget what it is. Where they they drag your body parts and pull out your entrails and yeah. Hanging, so, drawing, and quartering. That's it. Thank you. Um, yeah. So they're were, they were really nasty looking uh, tools. And, but, and all part of Russell's collection. <laughs> what a sick person. <laughs> Oh, that's what gets me about these vampires. What, what do they spend their immortality doing? That they collect thick crowns from kings who they make have no further use for them. Uh, you know, they, they amass great wealth. But where are the vampire artists? Can you imagine what, what kind of artist you'd be after a couple of thousand years? Uh, you know, they, they don't do much. That's, that's what, they're just parasites. <laughs> Maybe they go nuts, like in... Um was it Simone de Beauvoir, uh, where, uh, what is it, the book that she wrote, where this guy's, he's been immortal and he just wants to die. Mm. And he's, like he's, Godric. Uh, yeah, he's mm. just lived his life for mm. so long. Mm. So, 
Yeah, what do you do when you're a vampire other than drink blood and have sex? I kind of hope a lot of them would have multiple languages and be able to yeah. play a lot of instruments yeah. and have all these kind of skills because you just, you know, and, and Star you Trek want to keep doing like. stuff. But, but most of them don't really seem to do that. It would be like Star Trek. They would say, yes, I was, I was um, Brahms and Da Vinci and, you know, you think, oh, wow. Yeah. Now there's a useful get, vampire. Get bored and you could learn a lot of stuff. Well, Anne Rice at least would make him a rock star or something. Yeah, know. right. <laughs> there's another interesting difference there. You know, the Anne Rice books all set in that marvellously mouldy New Orleans setting. I don't actually like them very much. I sort of like Spike and Buffy who said, do people still believe that Anne Rice stuff? But I find that Charlene's books aren't very good at giving me a sense of place. It could be any place, really, when I'm reading those books. Any small town USA. Maybe that's deliberate, I don't know. But watching the series, which has the advantage of visuals and accents and so on, uh, I find that very, very... You know, it gives me that feeling I'm in Louisiana, in the bayou country, uh, and that really enhances for me that, that whole evocative atmosphere of true blood. I don't think I've felt quite that way about uh, other vampire series before, which is actually quite a surprise, you know, that, it can actually make me think, oh, this is something different. It's nice. Uh, do, does anyone have objections to the uh, liberties they took with the vampire law, like reflections, being able to have reflections, have your photograph taken, uh, the silver thing? Because I, I know some people are, are very offended by the sparkling uh, vampires. Um, so, uh, <laughs> were there any things in, in True Blood that you kind of felt were a little bit of offensive or...? I don't mind that they can see their reflection because it adds to them being able to develop the characters from yeah. what they're wearing. Mm -hmm. How can we watch it on telly if they, we can't see the reflection? <laughs> but once they start to go outside into the sunlight, mm. that takes away... That allows them a lot more excuses to do stories and going places yeah. and... It doesn't restrict it enough. Yeah. They can try, it, it's a bit lazier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You re realise that the sunlight thing is only as old as the Murnau's Nosferatu film. It doesn't go much further back in you know, the vampire sort of legends anyway. And to me, it's all, it's all made up anyway. So as long as, you, as long as you put your rules in place in the series and sort of remain consistent, it's like a detective show. We can be, fe we can be feel fairly sure they're going to be fair with us as we go along. But that's a good point at the sunlight. So if you're kind of hauled up by a, a vampire, you've got to check which uh, series that which they're into. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, are you a Del Toro or a Whedon? Well, let's. Uh, believe we're getting. We've just about wrapped up for the night. I believe we're in the ballpark. That time, there aren't. Just probably have time for one more question. Mm -hmm. If anyone was sitting and had Dead. Mm. So, yeah. so you can try and make up, you can try and find rules that you can 
makeup in your head or go by in your head to kind of make the story work for you? No, it's dead. It's like... Surely this is just hair splitting, you know. I mean, you know. <laughs> It's a vampire. I mean, are you going to be? I mean, how about how cool is that? Never having to shave again if you were if you were shaven when you. <laughs> All right. On that note, I'm going to go without a mic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I um, thank you very much for coming this evening. I'd just like to thank our panelists this evening, Helena, Rob, and Emily. Thank you. <laughs> To also let you know that next month's live in the studio, uh, we have the return of the Box Cutters, who uh, did a session for us around Degrassi and Nineties Nostalgia. They're returning with the Muppets, <laughs> so keep your eyes out for that one. That's for next month. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank You've been you. a good audience.